Welcome to the Jesse Garcia Show, your half-hour home for politics, culture, and art. We come to you every week with a new story about your world. On today's show, we have a civil rights leader whose life intersects every community currently struggling under this current administration's policies. Immigrant and openly gay Afro-Latino Gabriel Acevedo. He is one of the youngest people to ever hold office in the Maryland House of Delegates. This union organizer made waves in 2018 when he ran and won elected office. We'll hear about his journey from organizing in the streets to now introducing policy in the State House. Thank you for following the Jesse Garcia Show on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. For more information about the podcast, visit jessegarciashow.com. Save the date. The National Trans Visibility March will now take place Saturday, September 28th from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. at Freedom Plaza, located at 1455 Pennsylvania Avenue Northwest in Washington, D.C. The march will support equal rights and inclusion for the transgender community, demanding justice for the lives that were taken through senseless murders, demanding health and financial equity, and employment opportunities for transgender people. Registration is suggested to help organizers prepare for attendance. Search for National Trans Visibility March on Eventbrite.com. See you in September. Gabriel Acevedo is only 28 years old. In his young life, Gabriel has organized communities in Maryland to help immigrants, fought for marriage equality, fought for better wages, and rallied for the civil rights of the oppressed. With clipboard on hand, Gabriel knocked on doors, stood on street corners, and connected with neighbors to change the values in his community. He accomplished all this while graduating high school early and finishing college on time. Then he did the impossible for a young activist from a working class background. He got elected as state representative. Let's hear his journey and hopefully Gabriel will inspire you to pick up a clipboard and create your own change. I want to welcome to the show the Honorable Gabriel Acevedo, one of the youngest people ever to hold office in the Maryland House of Delegates. He made waves in 2018 when he won elected office after years of being a community organizer. Welcome, Delegate, so Delegate Acevedo. Uh, this is a busy month for you. June is Pride Month, and it's also Caribbean Heritage Month. Mm-hmm. And congratulations on being recognized by the Cuban-American community. Mm-hmm. Tell us about that much. award. Yeah, so uh, this week I was honored to kick off the Caribbean-American Heritage Month uh, in Montgomery County. Uh, and I was honored by the Caribbean American Advisory Group, which uh, in essence is a group that not only works on behalf of all Caribbean Americans, Mm -hmm. but advises the county executive in Montgomery County, as well as uh, other agencies in government uh, about the needs, the concerns, uh, and how to liaise with this very large community and diaspora in Montgomery County. I mean, it's huge, Uh, the Caribbean, encompasses uh, not just Latin American countries, West Indian countries, uh, French-speaking countries, Martinique, Guadeloupe, uh, also uh, countries that are geographically uh, situated in South America, but are, um, you know, uh, culturally 
uh, affiliated with the Caribbean. So it's a huge diaspora, it's a huge community, uh, and they've always had such a strong voice in government uh, as well as in our communities. And so uh, I was honored to kick off uh, the celebrations to talk about the work that uh, we did this past legislative session on behalf of immigrant families, uh, Caribbean uh, American uh, community, uh, and it was just a really amazing experience. And I want to thank all the organizers for putting it together, uh, as well as all the young people who came out and played Steel Pan and some of my favorite songs. <laughs> you know, it's just very nice. Your family immigrated when? Yeah, so uh, my family immigrated from Trinidad to Maryland, uh, Montgomery County, Maryland, uh, around 2005. Uh, I was back and forth, and I came. Um, after graduating secondary school in the Caribbean or high school. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, I've known no other place other than Montgomery County. I've called no other place other than Montgomery County, Maryland home. So, yeah. You, uh, like I said, made waves when you decided to run. And this last election in 2018 was a change maker because there was just so much diversity across the nation that was decided to run to resist and run and all these diverse candidates won their office. Yeah. Do you think being openly gay, Afro-Latinx, plus running as a democratic socialist mm -hmm. helped you in this election? Or were people just waiting for someone young like you to come along? <laughs> yeah. Well, for me, the most important thing was authenticity. Yes. Uh, showing up as myself. Being my authentic self and recognizing that there are other people out there like me who are Afro-Latino, who are queer, who are immigrants, who are formerly working poor, who uh, don't see themselves represented uh, in various aspects of our society from government to the C-suites to nonprofit. Uh, I remember growing up, you know, there weren't, and you can also speak to this, you know that, right? Uh, other than Billie Jean King, who was the, you know... Um, yeah. Uh, uh, athlete, tennis player, there weren't a lot of LGBTQ plus uh, visible people, uh, let alone uh, LGBTQ people of color. Exactly. Right? And so just understanding the kind of impact that had on me as someone who was coming into his identity, uh, 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 living his truth and not seeing himself represented anywhere. And then someone telling you and then a bunch of people telling you that who you are is wrong. Uh, it is not right. It is an abomination. Uh, and so when you hear people around you, people, even people that you uh, consider friends, family exactly. members, right, yeah. uh, tell you that in essence you are less than and then you look around your society and you don't see yourself represented in any kind of positions of power, just the kind of impact that has on our youth. And so I'm always conscious of that. Or when they tell you it's not your time yet. Exactly. And so for me, it was about authenticity and recognizing that there are other queer Afro-Latino youth who are immigrants as well and, uh, you know, struggling with their identity and, and, and dealing with rejection from family and from community. Right. And so wanting to be my authentic self and showing up so that people know that one, we're here and two, our youth can see themselves uh, and uh, uh, you know dream right you know dream and and, 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 and and imagine that it's possible for them to be in these very same positions of power and so that was the most important thing for me 
people knowing who I am, yes. people knowing where I come from, uh, people knowing the communities that I belong to because that's essential, right? It's all part of normalizing because we, we, we're not new. LGBTQ plus people aren't <laughs> new, right? As long as there has been human beings, there have been LGBTQ people. Uh, we have to normalize not just a conversation but our places in these positions of power so that yes. people know that we're just like everybody else. We care about our community. We care about building wealth. We care about giving back. Uh, but we have been locked out of these spaces and these positions of power. And so when we show up, we have to show up authentically. It's the most important thing that any LGBTQ plus person, any Latinx, any uh, uh, immigrant, uh, uh, any uh, working uh, a person can do is to show up as their authentic self so that people know that this ivory tower that is politics uh, is not removed from our communities and that you can be a part of that, you can be a part of that process. Be in charge of your own narrative. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. One of the reasons why people were drawn to you is because you came with a lot of name recognition before you decided to run for office. A lot of street cred on progressive issues from your union organizing and days of holding a clipboard, signing up people <laughs> right. to support your state's version of the Dream Act and LGBT mm -hmm. equality, which happened, yeah, thanks to your hard work, yeah, pounding those doors and yeah. walking those streets. First state, first, state, first state, state to pass the Dream Act at the ballot box. The Dream Act failed at the federal level, mm -hmm. and I remember when we were, and I met so many of my good friends uh, through this organizing work around the Dream Act at the federal level, and we were just so disappointed as a community, as immigrants, yeah. as you know, people wanting to uh, uh, make a better life for ourselves to see the Dream Act failed at the federal level. And so for me, it was about working within a space that I had influence in, and that was Maryland at the time. And so talking with a lot of leaders, organizing with them, uh, and being able to work on that issue at the state level and show the rest of the nation that this is possible. It's possible. Correct. Because let me tell you something. Prior to that, we were losing these elections mm. for marriage equality and Dream Act. Yeah. Uh, minorities will never win at the ballot box. We always have to wait for some court to decide on our rights mm -hmm. because people with that are in the majority tend to decide for us what's good for us yeah. and how they're going to keep us down. So it meant a lot when you all did that in Maryland because it just showed it can be done. Mm -hmm. It can be done. Mm -hmm. And I'll also point out we... Uh, were the first in the nation to um, approve marriage equality at the ballot box. So it wasn't just a Dream Act, but marriage equality as well, right? Yeah. Here is a state that's sending a powerful message uh, to the rest of the country to say that one, undocumented people belong here. We want them here. Yeah. Uh, we want dreamers. We want their uh, aspirations. We want their enthusiasm, their energy. We want all of it. But also it was uh, a very profound message that we were sending to the rest of the nation that LGBTQ people have the, be, uh, have the right to be as miserable in a marriage as our <laughs> cis hetero peers, right? You know, we have the right to uh, uh, feel love, to love, uh, and to be recognized equally before the law, right? Um, and I will never understand why, understanding how, you know, difficult and 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 and, and trying marriages it's 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 a it's it's a it's an investment right yes that you know you would see some of our cis hetero queers would want to deprive us of that kind of uh, misery yeah. right you know <laughs> but um you know it's 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 hugely important because um what it says is that 
we are equal before the law. Our community has, um, there have been sustained efforts to make us a permanent underclass. Yep. Uh, and that's not to say that we aren't because there are a lot of examples uh, to show of that underclass status, right? Whether we talk about LGBTQ youth homelessness, the insecurity, the financial insecurity, uh, and safety of our elders, LGBTQ yes. seniors, when we talk about trans women of color uh, who are dying and, and whose life expectancy are that of the 30s. Like, just imagine if any other group had the life expectancy of trans women of color in this country, that would be a national crisis, right? And so there are so many stats and data that we can point to um, uh, of the work that we still need to do, but we have to be determined in our efforts not to allow anyone to make us an underclass or a permanent underclass status. Your success story, you talk about you know the struggles, the obstacles that queer youth face. Somehow your success story at 28, you're living out my dream, <laughs> which is being in a, serving in the state legislature and creating change. What positive forces in your life helped you with your rise? Wow, uh, so, so many. Uh, my parents, uh, my friends, my siblings, uh, my community, my chosen family, yes. which is important for our community. Yes. You know, um, no other community understands chosen family better than LGBTQ plus people, right? When we yes. talk about Paris is burning and Pose on Fox right now, an amazing show. Uh, that I enjoy watching. We understand chosen family. And so all of that contributed to the individual that you see today. Um, did I have struggles? Absolutely. Uh, did I have um, challenging times? My mental health, you know, growing up in the Caribbean, uh, again, not seeing yourself represented, not just in the Caribbean, but even internationally, right? I, I can't even tell you you know, I think people sort of guessed who was queer back in the day, but there weren't anyone that was out and visible, right? Um, uh, Ellen DeGeneres became all the all the rave after, right? Um, I remember when she came out. You know, I was uh, I was young, but um, I wasn't uh, the age when I wanted to see that, right? Yeah. But it was still powerful, um, and so all of that contributed to the individual that you see today and my lived experiences right being an immigrant coming to the united states uh experiencing that intersectional oppression and discrimination being afro-latinx being uh, queer being an immigrant um uh, and being working poor right um and just what that all of that has contributed to the individual that you see today right um i proudly wear uh those scars um, because it not only allows us to understand the system that we're operating in, but how we need to dismantle it and do so in an intersectional way uh, and keeping in mind uh, what Audre Lorde once said, that there's no such thing as a single-issue struggle because we do not live, uh, live single-issue lives, right? Correct. Jesse doesn't fight for uh, Latinx liberation. He fights for queer liberation, right? He fights for immigrants' rights, et cetera, et cetera, because you exist at those various intersectionalities uh, and you would be, uh, uh, you'd be depriving yourself of full liberation by fighting for the ident for just one sole identity, right? You Correct. know, you can't just fight for Latinx liberation and then still be a second class citizen as a queer man in America, right? You cannot fight for queer liberation and then still be treated as a second class citizen as an immigrant, right? And so we have to fight for all of those intersecting identities 
Um, and uh, that's what I'm hoping we can, that's when, when we look at June and Pride Month and reflect on the 50 years, that's what I'm hoping we can take away from all of this, that we have to be inclusive. We gotta fight for all of us or yes. none of us, yes. right? Because our cis, white, queer, you know, uh, 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 community members uh, love to, and I'm hoping we could talk about this with marriage equality in Maryland, but love to sort of box our community into these various issues like, oh, well, marriage equality. And now that we got marriage equality, you know, we're all, uh, the community's all well and good when there are so many So many things. issues. Conversion therapy. Exactly, which I'm proud yeah. to say we banned in Maryland and I'm seeing other states Congratulations following. on that. Absolutely. And that meant so much to me because... You know, it, 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 it smashes this perception that somehow we are broken uh, and we need to be fixed. And conversion therapy does that when, uh, uh, and, and it also perpetuates this dangerous narrative that we saw many years ago where we were seen, our community LGBTQ plus people were seen as a uh, psychological yeah. defect, basically, right? You know, yes. these are people who are just mentally. Uh, off, and that is how quote unquote experts and people saw us back then, right? This is a part of chipping away at that perception that somehow we're broken, we need to be fixed. No, we're whole, you know, we are we were who born we perfect, are. exactly, right? <laughs> Unless some of us would like to think so, but you know, but that's 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 what it is. Aside from all the activism that you've got going on in your life. How is the Maryland's 39th House District? Some of, what are some of the issues that you deal with that don't do that don't necessarily civil rights issues? What are the issues in your district that you're currently working on? Yeah, well, quite a few. Yeah. Um, I am proud to say that you know I represent one of the most diverse districts in the state and in the country. We're 32% Caucasian, 22% Latinx, 21% Black. 16% Asian American and Pacific Islander. Women make up the majority of our district. We have a high immigrant population from Central America, the Caribbean, and West Africa. Um, and it's really, it, it really reflects the diversity and the promise of America. And I'm so proud and honored uh, to serve the people of the 39th district. Uh, we deal with uh, a myriad of issues locally, um, education and transportation being you know, the top issues. Uh, we have a lot of Title I schools in our district, mm -hmm. um, a lot of students that are uh, living in poverty, coming from um, low-income households living in concentrated poverty, and how that impacts their learning, and the majority of the students being Black and Latinx, right? Um, uh, and we know how things like poverty disrupts learning, yes. and how that impacts learning, uh, and we know also uh, the 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 possibilities of a quality public education. And so education is a top priority of mine. I'm proud to say we established uh, a commission to look at educational excellence in the state. That commission has done its work and they've come back with a list of recommendations that will that is poised to put Maryland as leading, not just in the country, but internationally in terms of our school systems from record investments in our schools uh, in investments in our infrastructure um, because we deal with the issue of uh, school overcrowding and class sizes and teacher-student yes. ratio. We're dealing with um, uh, 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 a system where we value our educators and we finally see it as the profession that it is and paying educators and teachers what they are worth. 
Um, we are also looking at the curriculum. And one of the things that I'm focused on is decolonizing the curriculum. I think uh, it's important for us to look at how our public school system uh, contributes and perpetuates white supremacy. You know, when we talk about whether it's Christopher Columbus or uh, whether we talk about this ridiculous holiday called Cinco de Mayo, you know, paint which the folks, whole picture, <laughs> you, you know, um, Give and it context. Yeah. You know, and, and it's, 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 it's important for us to uh, look at uh, cultural competency and decolonizing the curri uh, curriculum and ensuring that we're teaching Africana, Chicano. Uh, uh, and Oriental AAPI studies, and we're given this full picture of America and stop colonizing our children, including children of color, who are then graduating and going into the world and not understanding their place in the world, exactly. right? And thinking they're less than when they come from a very rich history. And so that's a part of it, um, but also it's about our investments in children who uh, 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 need extra attention, right? Those wraparound services, community schools, etc. So I'm really proud of the work that we're doing. We're also doing some work around transportation. Right now, we're in a bit of a fight with the governor over that, um, over I-495 and I-270 and his plans for that. He would like to uh, allow a private company to widen uh, 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 495 and 270. Um, and we think it's a very failed plan because of a number of reasons. One, a lack of public input. We are investing billions of dollars in transportations with, with very little to no input from the public and the people that live in those communities. Two is we have not seen the environmental impact statement for this project that he uh, so and others- rushed. Correct, right? And, and we know that we do not uh, inherit this, this, this state and these lands from the previous generation, but we borrowed from our children. And it is our responsibility that whatever project that we're looking at, um, we're looking at the environmental impacts of that because we don't want to leave a state and a country uh, damaged uh, and degraded for the next generation. And so we haven't gotten that EIS uh, uh, report as yet, and we're calling for that. And lastly, investments in transit. You know, not everybody owns a car. Not everybody wants to own a car. Uh, and particularly for people of color, uh, you know, investments in transit and public transit allows us to not only be mobile, but economically mobile because transportation determines the income too, right? Correct. You know, determines where you live. You know, if I can't afford uh, or, or, or deal with that commute, I'm going to live somewhere that would not only put me closer to home um, and, and, and uh, closer to work, I'm sorry, uh, but, uh, you know, gives me a shorter commute. Uh, and that sometimes pushes people of color to live in certain areas that they may not necessarily exactly. be able to afford, yes. right? So transit is a big part of the conversation. So that's at the local level. At the state level, a slew of issues from ending police violence, introduce Anton's law. Yeah, that's what I want to talk about. As legislature, as a, one of the legislators that are in the news today, you introduce Anton's law a bill requiring transpar uh, transparency in investigations of complaints against police officers. Yep. The bill was named for Anton Black, mm -hmm. a 19-year-old African-American man who was killed by police in Greensboro, Maryland. Mm -hmm. Do you think this bill will have its day? Uh, it will, and we will make sure of it. We're organizing to make sure of it. You know, organizing, uh, as Stokely Carmichael Kwame Ture once said, is the tool of the oppressed. If we aren't organizing, we aren't really committed to dismantling the systems that deny us our dignity. And so it will happen. I'm, make, I'm gonna make sure of that. And our coalition is gonna make sure of that. 
uh, Anton Black deserved to be alive today. Uh, but all too often, we're seeing that uh, Black and Latinx folks uh, are extrajudicially executed by law enforcement on a daily basis. Uh, and we have to police differently. Uh, we have to view policing differently. Uh, and we have to ensure that this opaque and quite frankly, very unaccountable system and department needs to be more accountable to the broader communities that they serve, but more specifically communities of color. Every 28 hours, a black man, woman, or child is extrajudicially executed by law enforcement. The community that is most impacted by police violence uh, uh, is the indigenous community, right? Um, uh, uh, Native Americans who are uh, killed each and every day that we do not investigate, we do not... We don't uh, hear about. Correct, right? Um, and so police violence is an issue all across the board, and I also think it's important to point out that we're not immune as LGBTQ plus people. Our movement, to remind everyone, our movement started as a result of police violence. Stonewall started because the New York Police Department was engaging in the kind of dehumanizing uh, and uh, mistreatment and abuse of a community that was only coming together to celebrate each other, right? And that was the impetus for Stonewall. So the LGBTQ plus community has a stake, is a stakeholder in the fight against ending police violence, but we don't hear that talked a lot uh, because largely our movement is led by cis, uh, uh, gay, white, um, uh, uh, siblings who uh, are focused on some of these issues that, quite frankly, um, you know, aren't immediate concerns, right? We care about these issues, but they aren't immediate concerns. When 40% of our youth are homeless, mm -hmm. we should be focusing on resources uh, and eliminating LGBTQ youth homelessness. When our seniors aren't protected, you know, imagine that seniors report uh, uh, high rates of abuse, even in senior living homes, from uh, 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 home care providers. Some of them are fearful because, you know, you hire someone to take care of you and they find out that you're queer and they start mistreating you and your partner. You have to go back into the closet because the person that's taking care of you exactly might not give you your medication on time. <laughs> it's sad, Jesse. It's, it, it really is sad. But, but, but and, and we have to be concerned about that because we're all gonna get there, yeah, right? And our elders, whose shoulders we stand on, mm -hmm. we should be caring for them. Sylvia Rivera was homeless. Marsha P. Johnson was homeless. Miss Major was homeless. These are people who not only contributed so much to queer youth of color in protecting us, ensuring that you know, we had a future and, 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 and this is the kind of uh, life that they had as they age and it was, it's truly unfortunate. And we have to do more to ensure that that is not the reality of more of our seniors because we're heading there. Yes. It's just a natural part of life, we all age. <laughs> so, but to come back to um, Anton Black, uh, this was a young man that was killed and his family was requesting information and the police department uh, refused to provide that. And what folks don't realize is that that's not something that they have to provide in the state of Maryland and in a lot of parts of the country. Yeah. And so the case got all the way to the governor who heard about it 
uh, and requested that that information be released and not too long after it was. And you see, the problem is, is that, that, that this young man or anyone should not wait for their death to reach all the way uh, uh, to the governor's desk in order for them to get some semblance of justice or accountability. That should not be happening. And so Anton's law, in essence, would have injected uh, uh, a measure of transparency into an already opaque process. On the day one. On day one. On day one. Um, but, and, and I think it's important to point out that transparency is just not uh, uh, the, the, the sole solution. There are a lot of other things. We have to reform, in my state, the Law Enforcement Officers' Bill of Rights. You see similar legislation in other states that protects police officers uh, uh, from um, uh, accountability and from justice that continues to make police departments unaccountable, uh, that fosters this culture of bad policing and corrupt Racial cops. profiling? Correct. All of it. And so we have to deal with that as well. We have to deal with the issue of white supremacy and white nationalism within our police departments. Uh, I was reading a story recently where they, 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 they had to let go a um, a number of officers in Virginia, uh, after finding out they were affiliated with these white, uh, with white nationalist groups, why isn't that routine across the United States? Wow. Right? Why aren't we looking at the quote-unquote extracurricular activities? activities? Yeah. Right. If you want to call it that, I yeah. wouldn't. But you know, yeah. just, you know, <laughs> just to be cute, extracurricular activities of some of these police officers outside of work, because that informs the way they police in our communities and the way they view us. Exactly. And it's hugely important, and I'm, and I'm making this appeal to the LGBTQ plus community. We have to get involved in this fight. This is not just the fight of black people, of Latinx people, of indigenous people. This is the fight for the LGBTQ plus community, and we have to be involved in it. Our movement started from it. Our movement started out of frustration with police violence. And if we are talking about honoring the legacy of people who have come before us, it means to continue to do that work. Why do you think people should show up in 2020? Totally different subject. Everything's at stake. Registering to vote and showing up to the polls. Yeah, everything's at stake. Everything's at stake, especially for uh, those of us that belong to oppressed communities. Everything is at stake. You've registered voters in the past. What is the one complaint that you always get from people like, when they don't want to vote? like What are some of the excuses they give you? It's been a, a, a few, um, and I can understand it. Um, it's, it's a feeling, one, it's not seeing themselves represented, mm -hmm. right, on the ballot, in government. Uh, another thing is not seeing their issues represented, right? Okay. Um, another thing is a feeling of uh, disempowerment that somehow uh, me engaging in my democracy or this political process doesn't make a difference and it's completely false yeah. right um, but also uh, a dissatisfaction with the establishment and current status quo people who come to our communities all the time and pander to us speak to our issues commit to things and then do completely nothing when elected that is a part of it and so it's a number of issues right and so it's so critical for us to show up in 2020 because we have everything to lose. Black folks, Latinx, indigenous people, queer folks, women, even though a majority of white women voted for Trump, and we need to talk about that, we need to unpack that. 
right? Yeah. Maybe yes, you could explore that in another <laughs> segment, Jesse, because we need to know, right? What? White uh-huh. women, white women need to understand that your whiteness will not save you from what patriarchy has for you. Okay, yeah, it will not. Okay, and it's critical for white women to understand that uh, and to work in an intentional and inclusive way to ensure that you're building coalition with other oppressed people to bring about the liberation that you seek. But whiteness will not save you from what patriarchy has for you. And so uh, 2020 is critical for us. We got to show up. Right, and, and, and I hope, have to mobilize our community. And I hope you're talking to communities and sharing this info because you inspire people. Time. I invite you to come speak to our event back in May um, for the local Latino uh, LULAC, our <clears throat> League of United Latin American Citizens State y'all. Convention, and we had a lot of children there, youth, there were youth, high school youth. And after you spoke, and I was dropping them off at their high school, they're like, "I want to run for office someday." And that's all it took. Someone like you. So these yeah. young women that I've been working with, young girls, they are they're very, very smart, mm. but they're very quiet. And I'm trying to teach them public speaking and mm. going up and giving a speech and being more sure of themselves. Yeah. But all it took was just listening to you for one of them to say, I want to run for office someday. This is something that's tangible. I am I'm so glad to hear that's just really yeah. heartwarming because again coming back coming back to what I said earlier, um, I want to be the person that I needed when I was that youth. That's important. Right? Yes. And did not have. And so we must not play down the power of presence, the power of showing up as our authentic selves, because you have walked into rooms, Jesse, where there was that queer Latinx youth who was like, well, damn, at, at least I can do that. Exactly. I know I can do that, right? Uh, there are the people out there like me, right? And that is the power of presence and showing up. You know, sometimes that is that is the most powerful thing that we, we, we can do. It's, it shouldn't be the only thing that we do, but it is the most powerful thing that we do. So it's really heartwarming to hear that youth are looking at that and I want them to I want them to dream and I want them to run and I'm looking forward to supporting them because our democracy needs them our democracy needs their voices and their lived experiences I saw so much passion in that room especially the questions that I was getting and you know it it really made me feel encouraged about our future yes but we got to continue to show up all of us right all of us Thank you so much for being on the show today. Of course. Gabriel, I'm very, very proud of being your friend, <laughs> having you as my friend, yes. and I wish you the best of luck. Thank you so much, Jesse. I really appreciate being on here and uh, you know, looking forward to coming back and having an amazing conversation. About we have a lot to unpack, like you said. <laughs> yeah. Onward, adelante. Thank you.